0: Well, thank you, Roland, for being my guest on the Wave Capital Guest Speaker Series on Relationship Building in a Team Environment. You're my 21st guest. I'm so glad for you to be here today. How are you?
1: I'm great, Garrett. Congratulations on that. That's that's a building portfolio.
0: Thank you, Roland. I'm reading your book, Michael Jordan, The Life. I'm really enjoying it a lot, and I can't wait to- Thank you talk to you about it, as well as all of the other books that you've written and how it's come to be in your life with relationship building, how it's led you here today. And uh, Roland, when you think of relationship building, what does relationship building mean to Roland Lazenby?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's what it's come to mean. Um, you know, relationships for me have always just been so easy. I, you know, some people just have it that way, and um, some people are just lucky. and that that is part of that. But as I've um, written these biographies, you know it's a it's a close study of personality, not just personality, but I write about great competitive personalities. And, um, you know, there are many of us that are competitive in many ways, but those in the arena, like a Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson, whom I'm writing about now, they are unique. And I've been blessed over the years to consult with a number of excellent sports psychologists. One of those George Mumford has become a dear friend of mine, but you know, he was deeply involved with the Bulls. Phil Jackson had pulled him in to, to, try, to try, try to take some of the pressure off of Michael and, and his teammates. And that's where I, I met George, you know, covering the Bulls back in the 90s. George and I uh, stayed at the same facility beside the Bulls practice facility. But George really got me to thinking in terms of emotional intelligence and how um, how vital that was. And you know, it comes in so many facets, but um, these great competitors are um, they're self made in some ways. They are quite organic, although, the, you know, there are obviously contrived things uh, about anything like a professional sports league like the NBA. There are certain things about these figures that are truly organic, and it's fun just to explore who they are and how they came to be that way.
0: Absolutely. And you have to really pull in a lot of your resources, talking to, you know, various people, various experts who are closely tied to the organization or were at one time. And you speak of George Mumford, how he became a friend of yours. Whom else did you have to speak with and how long did it take you to realize, hey, I have the ability to write about Michael Jordan or write about Magic Johnson? Were you always a book author Tell me more about relationships as well, you know, early on in your career. But, you know, I'd love to just know like how much of the uh, direct access you had with these athletes, or were you from afar gathering all the information through various parties who were close to them?
1: Oh, no, I, I, um, I wrote several books about the Bulls um, that were official books. And I, I actually, um, and I, I'd done that. I had um, first written a book about Ralph Sampson. I was a newspaper reporter. And before that, I was a high school wrestling coach. I I had no thought that I would ever be a sports writer. It was not something in my mind. I was not a great student. I did end up with a uh, undergraduate degree from Virginia Military Institute, but that, that was a long, sad story. It took forever. But I, um, I, I was diagnosed with a brain aneurysm when I was a, high, I was a 24-year-old varsity head coach. And uh, at the end of my first season, I was diagnosed with a brain aneurysm and hospitalized for 10 days. And I had late in college, I dabbled in writing a little bit. And I'd sort of realized, hey, I like this. And I spent 10 days in the hospital. Back then, they didn't have the technology to diagnose it properly. I was in great shape. I was pretty much what you call a physical specimen. I'm the antithesis of that today as an old man. But back then, I was the company pull-up champion at VMI, played a year of college football, three years of rugby, and now was the wrestling coach. and wrestled. Uh, we had a really good team, and I wrestled my heavyweights every day. But here I was in the hospital, scared to death. The doctor told me I was about it looked like I was about to have my first bleed on my aneurysm and that there was a 30% mortality rate on the first bleed. And, of course, that led to some uh, soul searching. He said, you better get your affairs in order. And he came back to me about seven days later and said, you know, we've given you every test possible. You haven't had your first bleed. And we have one more test we can give you. But if we do, it might induce a stroke. So we are going to discharge you. And my wife drove to pick me up. Uh, and we had both just sort of been, we had a a young daughter, the, the start of our family. and we both had been blindsided by it. And I said, and I was in great shape. And I said, when we got home, I said, I'm going to run five miles. I got to find out. I can't let this hang over my head and so I went and ran five miles and everything was okay and in the aftermath of that I got the idea I wanted to be a writer and uh, after another year of uh, coaching wrestling I got hired and I'd been doing some freelancing for the local weekly in Blacksburg and I got hired to cover Virginia Tech football and to be the full-time sports editor of the paper, I left behind my teaching and coaching job. And boy, I was on a, I was on a mission. I mean, 80, 90-hour weeks, I, I wanted to move through the industry. And I did. I, I got a master's in the writing program at Hollins University here in Roanoke, Virginia. Really fine writing school. And from there, I did my first book while I was there. And uh, boy, you know, doing that book on Ralph Sampson, I met Billy Packer of CBS Sports. He was the top dog among broadcasters. We ended up doing five books together over the years. Billy's a great friend. And I went on from there. We did a book that sold really well for a publisher. And they told me, what did I want to do? And at the time, uh, they were doing these, Uh, hardcover uh, guides to uh, the Dallas Cowboys that were selling well I said well I'd like to do that for the Boston Celtics and like that uh, you know I was sitting on press row in Boston the Celtics loved the idea and the next thing you know the the publishers said well call the Pistons and then the Lakers and suddenly I had all the NBA teams and my career was idea driven. I realized there was no history of the NBA finals. So I proposed to the publisher, we do a history of the NBA finals. The NBA loved it. And so That's great. next thing I know, I'm getting to interview all the greats, um, you know, all the old timers and, and really settled into that. Then I looked around a year later. I said, Billy, the Hall of Fame's getting ready to have a 100-year history. This was 1991. And I I mentioned this to him in late 89 or so. And so we put together, Billy and I, a book called The Golden Game about the entire history of basketball. And so these projects, uh, Billy and I had also done a history of the Final Four. So, these projects ended up being like graduate level work, except that I got to interview everybody and I got to, you know, just the right kind of exposure. So, it was great fun, a tremendous opportunity. And from there, I wanted to move even deeper into trade publishing. Trade publishing means the books that go into bookstores. And uh, I just was an idea guy. Uh, publishing is idea-driven. And, um, you know, I really, Michael Jordan told me once sitting down in the cheap seats in Orlando for the pre-draft camp in 08, I was asking him about his career. And he said something profound to me. He said, you know, timing's everything. And of course, Michael had this incredible timing to his career, unmatched. He came along at just the perfect time to be the, the Godhead of global sports marketing, as I called him in Michael Jordan, the life. Well, I had my own good timing. I came in and started writing about the NBA. Uh, you know, there, there wasn't the big crowd. Very soon, you know, the, the digital world would take over. But I came in in the last analog days. And I I was trudging around. I was nobody important, but I didn't know that. I was trudging around interviewing everybody. I was happy They have a saying here in the hills of Virginia where I live. I was happy as a pig in slop and really had a great time interviewing and getting to know people. And of course I worked with the Celtics and the Pistons I got to cover and I had first covered Jordan writing about Ralph Sampson and just to see those games with Ralph being the national player of the year and Jordan charging on you know it was I, I, I saw amazing things and then I was traveling um, and covering the Pistons and I got to know Joe Dumars really well and Isaiah was great and I got to know Dennis Rodman and all of those guys you know that was a that was and i you know i was there cover i was doing books for both teams and there were the pistons and the celtics in these monumental showdowns and then here come once the pistons break out then it was just epic the showdowns with jordan and his bulls you know and so this whole thing and then suddenly I'm at the 92 all-star game i got a contract to write a full full-scale book on the lakers
0: and i'm in orlando there. the 92 all-star oh game. yeah
1: I, you know it, it was a bad recession and all i, I was doing about 100 hundred thousand in writing work a year and that triple dip recession hit there so mm-hmm. i i go to orlando i have my press credential but i drive down in my car I, my contracts are delayed i don't have the, the revenue. So I sleep in my car in the media hotel parking lot but I'm able to go in. I've got my sport uh, my credential, I'm able to go to all the activities and, and so I just sleep in the car and cover the thing and you know you, you can get on the media bus, you got all the free media food and drink. So it, it was fine but that's where the Chicago Tribune had a book division back then. and they hired me to write the history of the Bulls. And I went in the summer 93, Jordan hadn't announced he was leaving the Bulls yet. Right. But I happened in very quickly behind the scenes in my interviews to this death match between Jerry Krause and Phil Jackson. And I mean, I was right in the middle of it because it came down to my interviews with both men and Phil was poking the bear in his interviews and, doing things that just infuriated crowds. They had, they had been close and worked together and they had become basically what would end up being enemies. But uh, the history did extremely well. I got hired to do two more books. Bu- Actually, I did three in all three Bulls championship books. You know, the the nice books when you win a championship. And one of them was named the Independent publishing association sports book of the year for that was for the 96 season when they were 72 and 10 but then one of the publishers hired me to write a full-length book on that last season called the last dance my book was called blood on the horns and it became a usa today number one bestseller because i had gotten to know everybody pretty well and i was a especially close with Tex winter, the triangle coach, Phil Jackson's assistant, Phil Jackson gave me lots of time. I had worked around to where I could get one-on-ones with Michael.
0: And, that's amazing uh, access to, and to be friends with Tex winter. That's great. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was, it was anyway, that's a long version of it, but that pretty much says how I, I rolled out of the Hills, um, a, a Virginia hillbilly, and ended up having uh, a delightful time.
0: Well, you had all of these relationships. You had all these relationships, right. and this is what this podcast is about: relationship building in a in a team environment. And you know, you talk about Ralph Sampson, and I worked with his daughter Rachel Sampson at ESPN. Have had the pleasure of meeting Michael Jordan, and you see his picture above my shoulder. Yeah. Uh, you talk about all of these players you got to cover and getting to know Michael on a one-to-one basis and, you know, having the access to interview him, any surprises, any things that when you were writing this book, you're like, I can't believe I'm writing this. I mean, look at all this content that I'm putting out and disseminating. And how did you get the clearance to, you know, cover and have some of the content be disseminated out to the public because some of these anecdotes in the book that i'm reading seem very personal to you know michael and his family
1: right uh they are and um but the first book blood on the horns and i've been writing i i I wrote a a full-length book on the lakers i i'd been doing a, a good bit of this stuff and uh as i uh went along, virtually everything I did was a surprise. Um, You know, I'm I'm interviewing Phil Jackson at one point during the last dance season. And Phil is, by then, in an all-out war with Jerry Krause. They hate each other. And I'm just in there to talk to him about the situation because it was unusual. And he starts telling me in the interview about the last thing Jordan liked to do before he played a game was go back and sit on the John. And that Jerry Krause just would not let the team alone. General managers usually stay away from the team because it, it's a lot of pressure on the players, but Krause was everywhere. And Phil said, yeah, Jerry had this, this need for intimacy. It, it seemed like every time Michael was back there on the John, Jerry would choose that moment to go back and sit on the John. and." Phil was telling me all this stuff because he knew he was jabbing it to Krause. And, you know, everybody sort of unloaded on their their personal experiences for Blood on the Horns. And it was a book that I had to do in a pretty big hurry, but it was full of, I mean, everybody from Tex Winter on down the line, they were explaining how they felt about things. And I, it really got into Jordan's brutally harsh leadership style. And um, that's why the, the Chicago Sun-Times bought the excerpts to the book. They, they, on their news boxes back then, they had blood on the horns on each news box all over the city. And, and that book sold a lot of copies and hardcover. And they ran on front page excerpts for like 10 days. It, it was ridiculous. But everybody just sort of unloaded as, as that was coming to an end. And uh, you know, I went on to do other projects, but about 2008, I got hired by ESPN Books to write a biography of Jerry West. And I had done a biography of Phil Jackson earlier, but this moved me into, um, you know, I guess I it, it it moved me into writing large biography where you examine everything, right. and the Jerry West book got me hired to do the Michael Jordan biography, and this is all based on proposal work, and you know my proposal for the Jordan book was called the Pig. Tim Hallam, the Bulls' PR director, always called the crowd of media around Jordan the pig because it was a lot of, you know, sports writers. They tend to run overweight. They they all got cameras and microphones. This was in the 90s. But, I, you know, I began talking about the experience of being in the pig in that media crowd covering Jordan. And that was the intro to the thing. But the fact was that the media people... Michael would dress in these wonderful suits and come out afterward and they would say why don't you get to the podium but he liked being there in the picture and it was that intimacy and it was really I think essential to Jordan because he was so charismatic and those reporters would crowd in around him with their questions and it was ridiculous. Um, you still see a lot of that you catch it there but in those days, those crowds around Jordan were, were spectacular.
0: I'm sure it was like very legendary. I mean, even Marv Albert said, you know, it feels like the Beatles are Oh,
1: yeah. And when Jordan came on back, the court. when Jordan came back in March of 95, I was there covering every bit of that. I was teaching college two days a week and then spending every weekend, four-day weekend in Chicago. I mean, it I I couldn't, it was just Too great, every, every event. And that led into 96 season, 97, 98. And I was there covering all of
0: them. Were you amazed that a GM like the late Jerry Krause, that a GM had so much power because Jerry Reinsdorf was the owner. And typically if the owner doesn't like something, yes, he is going to, or she is going to, or the group is going to talk to the GM, the GM has to talk to the coach and the coach has to talk to the players. But why do you think that Jerry Reinsdorf gave so much power to Jerry Krauss? Because it seemed to me that if Jerry Krauss was in the picture, although he helped tremendously, he helped put that team together. And obviously, you know, you saw this, the switch between Doug Collins and, Phil Jackson taking over and seemed like they had a more harmonious relationship. But going back to my previous question, how did Jerry Krause get so much latitude and and free reign from Jerry Reinsdorf, in your opinion?
1: Well, Jerry Krause was a joke in Chicago. He had earlier been named the GM of the Bulls in the late 70s and lasted a month. And Jerry um, was a complicated guy, extremely talented. Um, It seemed to me, and I spent a lot of time with Jerry. I did lots of interviews with him. And, and, you know, I found an interview tape. Uh, We've been going through all my tapes for a, a, a big project. From over the years, I've saved all these cassette tapes. But a lot of them I hadn't listened to. Cause you're in such a rush and um, Jerry Krause, Um I was at a game in Chicago, the, the Lakers were in town to play the, the old Washington Bullets. And I, I, I drove there to cover the game and it's, it's, it's a pretty good game. And the Lakers are always drawing a big media crowd. And I'm going into the, media, into the locker room to do my interviews. And I look up, this is April of 91. And there's Jerry Krause. And he's just standing outside the locker room. And it, it was obvious he was hoping somebody would talk to him. And so I pop over there and start chatting with him. And I didn't understand at the time why I was there, but he had done a brilliant job working for the Lakers in the late 70s as a scout. He had also done that for the Bullets earlier. He was very close to those two franchises. And that spring, the Bulls were coming alive. And he knew he had a great team. And so he wanted, it, it wasn't gloating. It was gloating, but he wanted to come down and sort of bask in all the spotlight that he thought would be there. And as it turned out, I was the only spotlight. I was the guy there interviewing him. and. He, just listening to that recording this year for the first time in 30 years. He was so hopeful, so excited, so proud of everything. He had you know he had fought back in his hometown uh, after being laughed out of town and he had come back and he was empowered by Jerry Reinsdorf and he had a lot of the abilities to do the job well. And then I contrasted that, you know, with all the interviews I did with Jerry before he died. um, After all this came apart in a very unhappy fashion, he was a bitter guy. And he told me, you know, I have all the record, all the videotape of all the moments, every game, the Jordan career, I've never looked at one of them not for a second and when I when I was contrasting 91 to I just thought how sad the whole thing was because Jerry really did have the vision nobody wanted to hire Phil Jackson nobody wanted to hire Tex Winter but Jerry was his own worst enemy and just like the earlier anecdote, he was, he was always had high needs for attention and, um, recognition. And, you know, these teams ultimately often become a battle over who gets the credit for what.
0: And that's the opposite of relationship building. You would think that here are the Chicago Bulls dynasty, six championships in eight years, And a lot of relationship building had to happen in the 80s. You know, Michael really liked Doug Collins because he always kept the ball in his hands. And Phil Jackson comes in and he's preaching more of a Dean Smith type of uh, game plan, which Michael was accustomed to at North Carolina. But the reason why Michael had to grow and he went through a lot of growing pains because he didn't have Scottie Pippen yet. And his supporting cast, although they're professional NBA players, you're having to face the Lakers dynasty. You're having to face the Celtics dynasty. You're having to face the bad boy Pistons, even teams like Cleveland or the Portland Trailblazers. I mean, there were great NBA teams in the 80s. I think that, you know, if Michael had Scottie Pippen and some of those other players in the 90s, maybe he would have had much earlier championship success. But then who knows how long it was gonna sustain the 90s. So you're right, it was tailor-made. He came in at a phenomenal time.
1: It My, did take, it took seven years and it was a painful seven years. But did. to answer your question, I, and I have long complicated answers sometimes. Why did Jerry Reinsdorf have Jerry Krause and allow him to do what he did? I, I, I think that's really the heart of the Last Dance docu-series that didn't make it clear. But Jerry Krause was a first-class son of a and he didn't give a crap about anybody, in the sense that he was tough and he was going to tell Phil Jackson, he, "I don't care if you got three championships, you're not worth the money." And and he would fight that battle for Reinsdorf, and Reinsdorf didn't have to to do it, but Reinsdorf had hugely pissed off Jordan about because Jordan had come back and played for virtually nothing. And then Reinsdorf just could not, could not be magnanimous about any of this. And Reinsdorf was a good guy, but he just didn't have the the personal skills to be uh, and he made, he and his partners made an absolute killing. They bought the Bulls for like 10 million dollars in uh 84, 85, and watched it grow, you know, it's worth how many billion today but even in the 90s Michael took the value of that franchise and made them you know it was easily a pro you wouldn't have sold it for a billion and Reinsdorf had made all this money and yet he did not want to give any of those guys raises and he really resented giving Michael the money and Krauss was the guy who sort of provided cover for Jerry Reinsdorf in that regard
0: so you're saying was, from your from your perspective, from your experience, they thought one in the same in some ways? I think, I, I, yes, yeah,
1: somewhat. Um, Krause was a kingmaker. He really did find people, talented people. He did all kinds of things. He was a kingmaker. He understood all kinds of talent. But he resented when he took people from being relative nobodies to somebodies. He resented suddenly that they would be making more than he was, and he resented. You know, he was the backup catcher on the baseball team, the guy who would never get in the game, but they would let him catch warm up before the game. You know, and he he would he had suffered. You could just look at him and see the short, fat guy who had suffered the ridicule all these years. And there was a lot of that in all of this. And he's dealing with, you know, premier jocks. And he just didn't understand who Jordan was. Nobody did. But Krauss would go in and poke the bear with Jordan, you know, about all kinds of things. All kinds of things. You didn't have to do much to infuriate Michael and really ignite that competitive anger in him. And Krauss would go on. Krauss had really scouted Earl the Pearl. Krause, he was one of the first guys to be in the um, traditionally black colleges and universities scouting talent.
0: Earl of Pearl Monroe would, from the New York Knicks.
1: And he would go on about Earl Monroe. And it just, I mean, Jordan could have choked him. And, you know, he got in the middle of Jordan's broken foot. that, And he was doing Reinstorf's bidding there. Um, those were complicated things. You, you can't mess with a competitive personality like
0: that. I remember from the last dance how Michael was having a conversation with Ryan's Dorf and so eager to get back into playing in, in 1986 when he's broke his foot. And it just showed how exceptional, and in my opinion, widely Michael Jordan is considered the greatest basketball player of all time. I mean, how many athletes even today can you think of who comes back from breaking his foot? And then with a few games, he dropped 63 points on the Boston Celtics. And they only lost that game by four, 135 to 131. And, you know, Michael still a 63 points to the playoff record to this day. And that was playing against. The Celtics wouldn't even double team him. Casey Jones, the old style, he didn't want to
1: double team. They just let it. They said, they're not going to beat us. And he let him go. And they were saying, coach, don't you want to double team now? But he wouldn't even double team him. But I have to say this about that. Here's That's the romantic version. And last dance, I mean, it's a romantic thing. He's a sports hero. He wants to play on a broken foot. Reinsdorf is trying to teach him the principle of risk reward. Yeah, you're gonna risk your career to play these last few games. What's the reward for that? What are you gonna get out of it? You're gonna get paid no matter what. Why are you, and um, is is the picture of cold reason, and Jordan is the picture of impassioned fury, and so there are certain places they could meet and understand one another. But in so many ways, the con- and Krauss was doing Reinstorf's bidding on all this. And of course Krauss agreed with him, risk reward. We all should learn early in life in our decision-making the balance of risk reward. Boy, I think the gambling parlors would be out of business if everybody calculated risk reward. You know, you got all these people going all in, wagering 10 times what a pot is, you know, just gambling. And so Jordan O was a gambler. He was, he wanted to get back at it. And he'd been down playing in Chapel Hill. He knew he could play. And so it it just was one of those things.
0: Do you feel that the dynasty could have continued at least a year or two more if, for the purpose of this podcast, relationship building was, at its best you know they had all the pieces
1: you know when i wanted the time with jordan uh and i got time with him uh, several situations one-on-one and and one of the first sessions i did this thing was grinding to its disaster and i said michael can't we get everybody in a room and work this out can't we just get everybody to sit down and say okay Let's negotiate this and get out all the silliness and not in this dynasty because they were they were good. They executed that triangle offense, which has been outlawed by the way. You can't play it anymore in the NBA. But I, I said, Michael, can't we just get together and square this thing up? This is silly. He said, there's no way. He said, if you expect me, having done all the things I've done to have my career, if you expect me to sit down and, and talk with him after all the dumb stuff he's done to derail what we're trying to do and the, the attitude he's taken i'm not sitting down and talking with him and he told me that and i really think that if i had taken that same question to kraus he just said the same thing he hated michael by then and you know in michael jordan retirement night the first time i was I was up there it was you know televised on TBS it was 94. Dean Smith was there. Michael there was showing the statue they'd put up and uh, they booed Krauss when he was in the whole crowd booed the crap out of him and his wife Thelma was sitting there and she was in tears and and Dean Smith went up to comfort her and she said, "Get away, you know, I don't want you around." Yeah, you you know, you you helped create all this, you know. um, This is Michael, you know, this is this bad. The bitterness was there before Michael ever came back for that that next one. And it was, um, it was uh, what killed it all.
0: How much of a strong relationship did Phil Jackson have with Michael Jordan, obviously he coached Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant for their three P with the Lakers. And, you know, in the NBA, one decision leads to another. If the brawls don't get broken up, Phil Jackson doesn't go to LA the next year and then win those three titles. And obviously wins two more with just Kobe Bryant and that supporting cast for those two years. But how much of an influence did Phil Jackson have on Michael Jordan's development, especially when he t- took over as a head coach and how quickly maybe did Michael realize once the Doug Collins' tenure was through that Phil was probably the right guy for the job.
1: You know, that going was into a process. Tex winner said that, of course, Phil Jackson's main talent, as Tex spent lots of time with me not just in that era Tex and I would have long phone conversations and Phil Jackson's main talent was relationship building and you know Phil was a guy who believed in a decided hierarchy that's why Shaq and Kobe was such a conflict in Los Angeles because Kobe had was young and had all this ambition I was right in the middle of that too And Phil sided with Shaquille. That was the top of his hierarchy. And Chicago was easier. Michael Jordan was the top of the hierarchy from the start. And everybody else had to fall in line behind that. And that's really how basketball teams work. If they're coached well, they're built on a hierarchy. Everybody knows how things are going to be. And that was Phil's strength. But Phil also was a great manipulator. And as George Mumford pointed out to me, um, manipulation leads to alienation. And one of the, the terrible things in the Bulls was Johnny Bach, the assistant coach. They had two elderly assistant coaches, Tex Winter and Johnny Bach. And Johnny Bach was a great figure. Um, and you know he would get in Jordan's ear and uh, say, attack, 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 and Phil was trying to work that triangle, and um, Phil was, and this was according to Reinsdorf and Krauss, who told me this, and Sam Smith disputes this some, but it, uh, when I called him about it at the time, he, you know, he he quibbled about it, but uh, Sam Smith had some inside sources for his fabulous book, The Jordan Rules, uh, about, you know, the 91 season. I have
0: that book right on my shelf.
1: Right. Well, um, Phil Jackson told everybody he wanted to get rid. He didn't tell everybody that Phil wanted to get rid of Johnny Bach. He did not want any conflicting voices there. And Johnny Bach, the beloved assistant coach. But Phil let Krauss believe that Johnny Bach had provided much of the inside secretive detail for the Jordan rules. And the one thing that Jerry Krauss and Michael Jordan could agree on is that they absolutely hated the Jordan rules. And Krauss told me, Sam Smith made some money on that book. I hope he chokes on every dollar. That's that's the passion they had over their anger. And so Jackson led Krauss to believe that Sams uh, that um, Johnny Bach had provided. Johnny Bach hadn't provided any of it. And yeah. as the last dance season came to a close, that's when Krauss and Reinstorf spill this whole story out to me in their anger. Uh, and, and I actually got it in the Phil Jackson biography, but Phil because he had got Jerry Krause enraged at Johnny Bach. He didn't have permission to fire Bach. And Johnny Bach had, you know, devastated his life. He didn't understand why he's being fired. He had a heart attack. He went through all this stuff. This is a long answer to your question. And so... Um, Later, Krauss, when he found out what Phil had done, he had this tearful reunion with Bach, who was coaching with Doug Collins in Detroit. He apologized for everything that happened. And, and of course, Bach later went to Charlotte to coach. He was a, you know a veteran assistant coach. Great guy, just, just a, an incredible figure. And I, And going back to the idea that manipulation leads to alienation, When Michael Jordan was um, inducted into the Hall of Fame, he bought Johnny Bach a new suit of of clothes and he put him on his personal jet to go and experience the whole thing with him. And Phil Jackson, meanwhile, got to watch it from a sports bar. And I think that... um, there are all these kinds of conflicts. And I, before I published the story about Johnny Bach, now this is a, this is typical Phil. I, I, I packaged up my manuscript and I FedExed it to Phil Jackson so that he'd have a couple of months to go over it. It laid out the whole Johnny Bach story. I never heard a word from Phil about it. He didn't respond. So 20 years later, this was in 1999 in the fall, as he was getting ready to go to work at the Lakers. 20, now Phil later came after me for reporting this. Phil was pretty vicious about it. But 20 years later, he answered me with an email. He sent me an email in 2019 about it, but even crazier, and Tex Winter was explaining to me all that Phil was doing to come after me, and the, you know, the, when by the time he's with the Lakers, I've been working with the Lakers for years, but they began to limit my press access to the Lakers, and and they they would tell Tex, "Quit talking to that guy." Tex said, "Hell no, he's just saying what happens. He's there to represent the facts." And Tex stood up to me fiercely, and he Tex would do interviews with me all day long. He was incredible. It would never been the truth at all, but when Phil did his um, autobiography, Eleven Rings, I was stunned that they twice cited my unauthorized biography in the notes for that book. And that's the way Phil is. Uh, You know, he'll do subtle mind games. In fact, my book about Phil was called Mind Games. Phil would do subtle things like that as a way of acknowledging that, you know, he had probably been overboard and way unfair in how he responded. And so um, these are complicated people that they do build relationships and often they build very complicated relationships, but they are bound together by the challenge. They're bound together by the life. This, I, you know, I call whatever you're doing, uh, these insular worlds, whether it's the stock market or the NBA, I, I call them the tube. You're so in the tube that, that is your world. It's like your your whole atmosphere and everything else going on around you doesn't matter. You're competing in the tube. And so these personalities who are in the tube, it's almost like they aren't everyday people.
0: Because they're so much caught up in what's going on in the immediate and the now. Especially
1: with the, those Jordan teams that, I mean, it was incredible. That was really a lot of what drove the global interest. Now, David Stern had begun dumping NBA games in the early eighties when he was moved in as commissioner all over Europe in Romania. And, and I learned this as I went along in Romania, they love soccer, but they couldn't afford to produce their local soccer games but they could, they could have NBA games on TV because they were so cheap to, to air, they weren't being charged much. But the, the payoff on that, the NBA built this global uh, fan base and they, it, suddenly t-shirt sales, equipment sales, all that stuff went from you know 100 million up over into the billions. And that, that started with Larry and magic as Michael came in, it just blew up. And today we see that was all David Stern's marketing strategy and it proved brilliant.
0: Do you still keep in touch with Michael and Phil and other former players?
1: Uh, not much. You know, the way you do that, if you're a writer, you're out on the circuit. Once I started writing biographies, but I would go, I went down, uh, I had to tell Michael personally, I was doing a biography on it, and um, nobody likes a biography, you know, uh, Steve Kerr is a great guy. Scott Howard Cooper, my friend, a great NBA writer, did a biography on Steve. Scott was telling me, Steve won't speak to him anymore. And I mean, these are difficult things. Some of the hard stories in the Jordan book. And, you know, I never use those stories to sell the book. I don't talk about them unless people bring it up. But um, Michael has an older sister who's a grandmother today. And from the time she was a teen, she had made allegations against her father. And nobody but the Jordan parents and this girl knew these allegations. But when James Jordan was murdered in the aftermath of that, the sister privately published a book that laid out everything about the dynamic of the family. And uh, you know when you're doing a biography, the and I'm doing the one on magic johnson now the idea is you're going to play it straight up if it's if it's part of the public record if it you know if you have the information then you're there to explain things and i didn't know what i was going to do i had i was miserable about this and it went on and i went down to unc to the library there and i was doing research and there in special collections was Michael's sister's book. <laughs> and I said, the library at UNC has it on special collections. I can't avoid and not only that, it explains so much of the dynamic in the Jordan family. And all of these things, the the overwhelming thing I think for my biography is that All of these things Jordan did in basketball, he did despite this backstory that no one knew of the immense difficulty and conflict in his family and how difficult that was for Michael. And so when I wrote about the sisters' allegations, and you've probably read that part, you don't see it coming anywhere in the book. I do not hype it. It's not blown up as some big deal. I deal with it in a very short section. It's very matter of fact. Uh, statute limitations ran out on it long ago. I said there's no way you can know if it's true or not. But the mere allegations themselves are devastating to families. And I, I, I did not do any more. I was, I, you know, I was a police reporter before I ever became a sports writer. And so I covered court cases, and I just wrote a little bit about that. Now, Michael shook my hand after the book came out, but he um, remains very angry about that, just as he was furious about his sister's book. And, you know, I don't have an answer for that. Was it the right thing? Was it the wrong thing? I felt as a biographer, that was a significant document. I read the book. I found it um, believable. Not that he did that, but that she believed he did it, that there was serious, he said, she said about it. And it wasn't one incident. It was a pattern of abuse, she alleged. And she didn't allege it just as a teenager. She alleged it over the entire course of her life. And she loved her father very much. And my book, you'll, you'll see it ends with James Jordan and Michael together in this segment. I won't tell you anymore. But, um, and, and James Jordan was beloved in Chicago, but he had issues. And they involved legal issues on important things. And the book detailed his issues. And um, it's very sad. Uh, I, uh, you know, I, I don't have an answer for, it. I, you know, It's it was among pertinent, obvious public facts. I, I did not hype them, but I did include them. As far as team building goes, uh, I had to sit down in 1998. I had all this information behind the scenes about how brutal and harsh Michael Jordan was with his teammates, how brutal and harsh he was when, with Jerry Krause on the team bus and, and how he would treat people. And I had to figure, how am I gonna ask Michael this face to face? And I decided, you know, Michael is a great team leader. And, I, and I'm gonna say, Michael, you have, and James Worthy had told me, Michael is a bully and he bullied me I was a junior at UNC, he was a freshman, he bullied me. And so I, I, I had to sit down and say, Michael, some people say you have an extremely wicked sense of humor, that you're very harsh on your teammates, but that that is your leadership style, that you are a great team leader and that's what you do. And that was how I couched it to him so that we could have that conversation. And his answer to me was, it is true. I can be very hard. But I don't don't treat them badly just for the purpose of treating them badly. I put all kinds of pressure on them because I want to find out if they can handle the pressure. Because I need people to be able to handle the pressure when they're on the floor with me at championship time. Now, Michael believed that, I'm sure, in his mind. Others scoffed at that as the reason and that there was a certain part of Michael that was just really, really harsh.
0: But I,
1: I had to ask him to his face before I published those things.
0: And what has all of this, if you can think of it, think of it you know, as a culmination of your career as a, as a book author, what has it taught you about relationship building in your life as you think about and chronicle your personal life and even leading to wanting to write another book about another NBA superstar like Magic Johnson who went through his trials and tribulations but I wanted to spend the last several minutes of talking about you personally and what has relationship building meant to you and was your impression of relationship building different before you were writing all these books and covering these athletes did it add to it did it your idea of relationship building adapt in any way?
1: Um, my, my Obviously, you can't be a biographer really spending all your time pouring over the details of human nature without being changed by that. Um, my natural inclination has always been an open and easygoing, friendly manner that led to every kind of relationship building. I went to college at Virginia Military Institute, where the class system, you know, is built under all this duress they throw at you, marching to class six days a week, and all of the inspections, and, you know, uh, and and so I had that natural ability to do that. It didn't make me a great leader, but it made me a, uh, you know, a good friend, Um, but I, I also have coached a lot, And uh, I've had some success coaching. And, um, you know, I I guess it's also organic in my life, especially going through a leadership place like Virginia Military Institute, where it's, I mean, that's the whole focus. And um, being involved in all the sports teams, and so much of it is by example so much of leadership, uh, and this is particularly true in sports, are you gonna be that person that can step up? Are you, do you have that certain element of fearlessness that allows you to step into a moment? But, but I think that's also true in everyday life. Uh, and I think example, I mean, nobody worked harder than Michael Jordan, except maybe Kobe Bryant. And Kobe Bryant had terrible leadership skills. Except that he was insane in his work, together. and he um, he struggled to be a leader. Magic Johnson, people would follow him through walls. Uh, you know, they're all different. Everybody has a very individual leadership style based on family and personality. But I I think one of the big common things, two of them, one, um, do you have a style? What is it? And two, what is your level of emotional intelligence? And I think it is probably the least respected of the, the, quote, sets of intelligence. But I disagree with that. I think emotional intelligence is one of the most powerful forces in humanity.
0: I believe and, so too, the emotional intelligence quotient.
1: And it is huge in getting um, in getting people to respond. Uh, the example you set and your level of emotional intelligence, how in tune you are, it doesn't mean you're always empathetic. Jordan was hardly ever empathetic. But he was in tune. He knew what what he could do to punch the buttons of the people around him. And he was ruthless in punching those buttons. He was playing um, Jim Rose, uh, uh, an African-American broadcaster in Chicago for for Blood on the Horns, the book about the last dance season. He was playing in a charity game, two-on-two with Jordan at some event, fundraising event. And he blew a layup and Jordan looked at him and said, you're not black enough. Jim Rose said, I was so furious. I found myself throwing a ball at Michael's head, trying to take his head off. And, uh, you know, Jim's is, uh, extremely bright, successful broadcaster, uh, just a really, really good person. And, um, Jordan reached right in and took him to that other level. Of course, Jordan was used to doing that himself. It's it's a everyone knows that when Mark uh, when Michael needed to motivate himself, if he didn't have something, he could make something up. That just reached right in and reached right in the chest and punched that button over the heart that
0: elevated everything. Yeah, and you know when my father and I met. Michael back in 2005 and again this is my basketball idol and I consider him to be just like many millions of people across the world the greatest basketball player of all time and obviously there's the personal side of Michael and there's a professional side and you know as a 17 year old you know, even to this day I still think about everything he'd done for the game of basketball because nobody in life is perfect and you know, nobody's upbringing is perfect, but I think that, you know, you always want to see the positives in everybody because nobody's perfect. And, you know, I was just drawn to just his way that he carried himself. And I mean, even Allen Iresson alluded to it that when he first saw Michael Jordan on the court, you know, he felt like there was an aura around him, you know, and Allen and Alan Irison, you know, mentioned it in his Hall of Fame speech too. But when my dad... There was
1: an aura around him, by the way.
0: <laughs> there, of course, <laughs> of course, there really was. And I remember what it felt like when I first saw him in person for the first time. And as a 17-year-old thinking, wow, did I ever think that I'd have the opportunity to meet him? And my father made that possible by, you know, bringing me along with him to the Hooptie Celebrity Golf Classic. But my short anecdote, and it's something that will live on with me forever is that my dad walked up to him with me and he said, you know, Michael, this is forever. You know, they call him MJ in high school. He's on the high school basketball team. His nickname is MJ because he has so much admiration for you. And Michael's antennas were up and he looked at me and he said, well, you got to grow a little bit, don't you boy? (laughs) (laughs) To be called MJ. But he he had had the ability to poke in a a
1: funny way. I've seen him do it a hundred times. And he just had, Sonny Vaccaro was the one who drove Nike to give him that fabulous contract right out of college. And Sonny Vaccaro saw him, in, 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 you know, against Georgetown in the championship game as a freshman. And he said, this kid has got the it factor unlike anybody else. And, of course, Sonny later decided the same about Kobe. They, they have a certain charisma. It doesn't mean they're the nicest it doesn't mean they're this or that it's it's almost that thing that can't be defined that ability
0: on that note when you talk about the complications of human beings especially at that level the greatness that they have you know the personality traits you know what makes them who they are and what makes them whether they're great relationship builders or not The last question to you is before we conclude. And again, I just want to preface this by saying, I look forward to having many more conversations with you. I know that you're writing currently writing your book about Magic Johnson's life. I'd love to interview you in the future because this is clearly not enough time, even though we've talked for over an hour and I've enjoyed every minute of it. And I can't wait to have many more conversations with you. And I want to write a book as I've mentioned to you, and you're one of the chapters in my book because you're one of my guests of the podcast, but what, final words do you have for our audience here today about relationship building and what words of wisdom can you impart that they can carry from this episode?
1: There's so many different relationships. It's it's hard almost, you know, there, there are sales relationships where you, you have to accomplish things in a very quick amount of time. There are other relationships that require a slow process. I, I, I think um, it, it, it's all wrapped up in the secret of emotional intelligence. And um, it's almost, well, I, I write all my biographies as if I'm pursuing a mystery. And there is a great mystery in every life. And there's a great mystery to every relationship. And you, you really sort of unpack the details at the time. I remember the first time I saw Michael, I was covering a University of Virginia game against North Carolina at u Hall, the old u Hall in Charlottesville. The Wahoos had something like a 30 game win streak and uh, UNC got a big lead on them. This was in January of 83, as I recall and suddenly UVA came storming back. They had Ralph, they had Othell Wilson, and they they were coming back and they had cut the lead to about four. And Ralph Sampson, all seven, four of him, came down the floor, got a good open jumper, and Jordan leapt diagonally across the lane. The most amazing play. I mean, I've seen millions of basketball plays. He leapt across that lane, he slammed Jordan's jumper down with the ferocity that made everybody on press road jump. He just scared the crap out of everybody. It was such a ferocious play. I've never seen anything like it, it was a defensive. And so 15 years later, I'm sitting in the, the, the Charlotte Coliseum, the nice new building they tore down in Charlotte. But I'm sitting there, the Bulls are getting ready to play a game, And Michael is sipping coffee out of a styrofoam cup and I'm getting to talk with him one-on-one. I said, Michael, do you remember blocking that shot against Ralph Sampson? He looked at me, he said, remember it. He said, I had no idea I could do that. He said, the thing that people don't understand is that I I was surprising even myself with the things I did. And so, and, and, you know, Ralph had Michael wanted to go to UVA instead of UNC Mm. and he wrote Terry Holland. Terry confirmed this for the book. You'll read it later. If you're reading the book, Terry wouldn't recruit him. He was sure Dean Smith wouldn't let him go. And so he declined to recruit Michael Jordan. And I think part of the ferocity of that block, Terry Holland was over there applauding the block. It was such an amazing play. Terry Holland said, then I realized I I was applauding against my own team and I grabbed the rep. I said, that's goaltending, that's goaltending. But the relationships are obviously built differently all over the place. I I think Michael has provided us probably with some of the most unique relationship building in, in the history of competitive sports.
0: I would agree with that. And I would love to talk about this with you as well. And chronicle it in the book. So if I have follow-up questions after this podcast, when I start writing the book, I'll be sure to ask you, because that would complete the chapter with you know you and me as you're my guest on the Wave Capital guest speaker series on relationship building and team environment. Thank you so much, Roland, for all of this exciting insight. You know, very riveting, very in depth and it just speaks to the level of access that you had and people trusting you to chronicle this information in the way that you have. And I know that it sure wasn't easy getting these books written and knowing what to put and not to put and being respectful, I'm sure, of other people's I,
1: and, I, and i you know i have my guidelines there are plenty of things including michael's book that i did not include it might have sold more books but it just wasn't where i was going to go in in personal and private life and this was a real deliberation for me i will say that my book michael jordan the life i just got noticed it's been translated into the 21st language portuguese it's all over the world and that has nothing to do with me it has to do with the presence and specter of Michael Jordan. Well, he, he made everybody around the world care about dowdy old American pro basketball,
0: and it just speaks to how selfless you are for him as the main focus of Michael Jordan's life. And although you're the writer, obviously you're chronicling his life, the greatest basketball player of all time and that your selfless approach that you are blessed to have written this book and you know where the emphasis of focus is because it's about him but you should take just as much credit because you're the one who had to write it and it was exceptionally well-written and I'm continuing to read and I can't wait to complete the book. Thank you. Thank you, Garrett really enjoyed it. Thank you, Roland. Can't wait to talk to you soon. Happy New Year to you and God bless and we'll talk soon. All right, Garrett. Take care, man. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye-bye.